Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nish Nikolic, and my guest today is Associate Professor Alan Pena. He is a neuropsychologist whose interests lie in the field of cognitive neuroscience and clinical neuropsychology. After receiving a master's degree in psychology from the University of Geneva in Switzerland and a second master's degree in human physiology from University College London. He obtained his PhD from the University of Geneva using brain imaging techniques to study spatial processing in both healthy controls and brain damaged patients. He worked for over 20 years as a clinical neuropsychologist at Geneva University Hospital and is an academic at the University of Geneva, where he supervises numerous research projects in the field of visual-spatial processing, again in healthy participants and in persons with focal brain lesions. He joined University of Queensland in 2015, where he now explores the neural basis of visual and spatial processing of emotional stimuli. More specifically, using EEG, he examines the brain's response to different facial expressions, as well as to faces that vary in their perceived approachability, for example, their apparent trustworthiness or dominance. When possible, these studies are also carried out with brain-damaged individuals in order to investigate the role of particular brain regions in these processes. This is a really fascinating conversation uh, with Associate Professor Alan Pena, and I would really encourage you to think a bit more deeper as to the applications that this holds in terms of our natural biases that are out of our consciousness that I think you know, is so fascinating in, in understanding ourselves more and also about how we relate with others. Enjoy the show. Alan, a big thank you for coming onto the show and taking some time out of your busy schedule. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to you today, you know, particularly about this space of, you know, cognitive neuroscience and, you know, clinical neuropsychology, you know, in particular, your work in, in you know, the, 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 the space that most of us you know, have probably never considered, but is, 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 is a force, you know, is an act that, that, that that's occurring for all of us, you know, around how the brain responds, you know, to different facial expressions, you know, it's something that we do. From, from, you know, birth uh, in many ways, we're smiling towards children and, you know, connecting in that way. And, you know, we've all felt what it's like for someone to smile back at us versus to frown versus to maybe, you know, not have any uh, facial expression. So, so excited to have you on the show today. Well, I'm happy to be here. And again, talking to, to you about this, it's really interesting because it's a topic I'm really passionate about. So, ready to discuss any aspect of it with Fantastic. you. So, tell me, how did you get into this space? You know, where did this passion come from? Well, that's that's a good point. I've, I've always, I was interested in the brain, I think, practically in high school. I think the first books I read about the brain was when, uh, th- these were things I read when I was in high school and um, always wanted to study psychology and particularly neuropsychology. I was always interested in the way the brain um, and behavior interacted, how, what part of our behavior was determined by, by our neurons, by our biology, if you like. Um, and so, as expected, I studied psychology, um, I studied neuropsychology, and um, I did my research, my PhD in that area, and I started working in a hospital. And I think the actual interest I had in facial expressions actually was sparked by a very specific situation uh, I found myself in 
some, how long ago was that? That must have been around 15 years ago, I think, um, where I came across a an individual who sadly um, had a stroke that caused him to lose his his ability to see. So he was what we call cortically blind. That means that his retina uh, of both his eyes were intact. His optic nerves were intact. It's just that once the information reached the first um, processing steps in the brain, at the back of the brain, the first areas that deal with vision, those areas were damaged. So he was, um, for all intents and purposes, he was blind. Now, what was very surprising, I had this chance finding one day, walking in to the ward to check on him and see um, if he had improved. I walked into the room and without really thinking about, without really remembering the fact that he couldn't see, I, I was thinking of something else. I opened the door and he looked up at me and, and I smiled at him without saying anything, uh, suddenly realizing obviously that I'm smiling at someone who can't see. That doesn't make sense. I have to say something. But before I before I said anything, he smiled back. And I immediately thought that he had improved, that something had happened, that he had improved, that he had regained his vision. Um, so I told him, oh, well, Mr. So-so, you're, you're, looks like you recovered. And he said, no, why? I can't see. Why are you saying that? It's just as bad as it was yesterday. I said, yes, well, I smiled at you and you smiled back. How is that? You know, what happened? He said, well, I don't know. I suppose I kind of thought that anyone who would walk into the room would would be smiling, which is why I smiled back. Now, that wasn't an explanation that I found really convincing. So what I did is I tested this experimentally. I, I put him in front of a computer and I flashed a series of faces with emotional expressions. So smiling faces, angry faces, and so on. And I asked him to tell me what the expression of the face was. Now, he initially just brushed it off. He said, well, I can't see. What, what are you asking me to do? I said, yeah, well, just take a guess then. What do you think? What do you feel? What, do you, what are your expectations about the face that's appearing on the screen? And I flashed a series of faces. He said, okay, I'll go along with you. I'll, I'll do it. But, you know, I'm just guessing. It almost Turned sounds out, crazy at this point, right? It, it does, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's like, why would you be asking me to do this? But, you know, your hunch, it's like, let's let's just have a look. Absolutely. Um, and it turned out that he was actually guessing above chance. He, he, he couldn't see the faces consciously. He wasn't detecting them. But he was able to guess what the expression was. So he wasn't—he wasn't flawless. He wasn't at a hundred percent, but he was just well above chance. If you toss a coin and you get that kind of of pattern of response, you know that your coin isn't properly balanced, so to speak. Just, just out of curiosity, you know, well above. Yeah. Obviously, chance is fifty-fifty. Um, actually, it's probably even less because it's not just smiling or frowning. You know, it's not yeah. two options, right? Yeah. Um, but was it? You know, was it, um, you know, significantly more than what you would have expected if it was by by chance? So yeah, it was. It was. It was. Wow. Again, wasn't highly. It was perhaps around off the top of my head. I think it was in the 60, 60 something percent. Wow. But but the thing is, I, I didn't even trust the results at first. I, I did that over and over again. What I did was on one day I presented smiling and angry faces and told him, can you guess if it's smiling or angry? And the next day I started again with fearful expressions and happy expressions. And then the next day I started again, you know, sort of went on over several days trying different emotional expressions. And he was always above chance with this task. Wow. So there you go. Now the story doesn't really stop there because at first I thought something is weird. And I, I'm, I'm a clinician, but also a scientist more of a scientist perhaps today than a clinician, I think. Uh, at least I've progressed more towards the research component of my work. So I I retested him with other types of stimuli. I, I retested him with um, photographs of male and female faces and asked him to guess it was a man or a woman. Um, but he was a chance. I tried circles and squares. He was a chance. I tried positive scenes and negative scenes, you know, sort of scenes that show very negative things, rubbish and things lying on the ground versus um, children playing, for example, and asked him to guess if that was positive or negative. 
but he was also a chance level there. So it was really, so it was really only the emotions because when I went back again and then restarted the whole experiment with the emotions, he was again above chance. So it was really something that was systematically that I found systematically. And is is that is that something that um, uh, obviously w- w- was was unique to him because of the type of brain damage and where it was in the occipital lobes? I'm assuming yes. it's something in the effect of occipital lobes. Um, uh, uh, is 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 it something that uh, our emotional um, uh, facial expression is something that we have a greater connection to versus you know circles and squares? Does that is that retained more or more likely to be retained than these other things like you know a positive or a negative scene or you know whether it's even male or female? But it's more important whether the male or female is smiling versus, you know, where there's a threat or a, or a, you know, safety response. Yeah, I, I, I believe so. <clears throat> and there's, there's some evidence that there's some evidence that the processing, this kind of automatic processing that, that occurs without awareness has to be, has to be about, relatively either very basic things that we learn to associate with negative situations or perhaps genetically um, programmed features, things like spiders and snakes, potentially. Mm-hmm. Now, I have, to, I have to point out that these findings, so just perhaps one element that I can add to the, to the final element of the, the puzzle here is that I still was wondering which part of the brain was responding. Because if he is guessing above chance, it does mean that something somewhere in his brain, this information is being processed. So what we then did, the last step of that series of experiments was to then scan his brain while we presented images, photographs of facial expressions and neutral expressions. And we tried to establish which part of the brain was responding to the emotion. So um, it turned out that what was happening is uh, the amygdala, which is a structure situated in the temporal lobes. So it was on the right in his case, the right amygdala was responding to these emotional expressions, even though the visual areas, the main visual areas at the back of the brain were destroyed. So there was no response there. So somehow we realized that information was coming across from the retina, transiting through a number of relay stations and ending up in the amygdala. Again, that being a structure that processes emotional expressions, but doesn't need awareness. It does that without you necess- without it actually gaining consciousness mm, that uh, clearly there was information because of the intact you know retina mm-hmm. you know the the uh you know the eyes are intact so there's still information coming in it's just yeah. that the occipital lobes are not uh, uh processing or, or maybe they are but only to a certain level that is, yeah. is not demonstrating vision yeah. for, for for the gentleman or potentially not maybe yeah. those elements you know are, are something that the amygdala itself can pick up um mm-hmm. uh, if, yeah wow yes it's it's yeah it's really interesting it's really interesting so what happened what what, what happened next yeah. for you i mean how because yeah. obviously that, that that that's changed your trajectory it's like you know i've got to look into this more this yeah. is this, absolutely this is huge absolutely yeah th- this became really interesting and again the reason i i emphasize this point is that that really sparked for me an interest in emotional expressions facial expressions but also in awareness of um facial expressions or emotional stimuli um, now, it's hard at this point not to acknowledge the fact that, um, and I wouldn't want to not acknowledge the fact that there are other researchers who had been working on this in the past, and, and I had read their work, and I was, of course, fascinated. And I'm thinking about uh, scientists like uh, Beatrice de Gelder or Joseph Ledoux, who had been working on this topic, and who um, I'd read their work, which is why it gave me the idea of moving forward in these studies. But what I found particularly interesting is that um, 
since then, I've been again exploring these aspects of facial emotions. And among the questions that I'm exploring currently, typically, are questions like, um, do you, what are the stimuli that are processed without awareness? So it's, yes, facial expressions, but is it just an angry face, a happy face, a fearful face? Again, is it a trustworthy face? Would things like that be processed potentially? And what about Joseph Ledoux, in, he wrote a book called The Emotional Brain, and he already had suggested, um, and that, that was back in the, the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, he suggested that this kind of non-conscious processing would occur for anything that's a threat, and, and it's a, a, an old pathway that's been maintained in the brain that allows us to gain those extra milliseconds when we have to respond to something that's a threat to us. That's, you know, for evolutionary purposes, it makes sense to be able to detect the presence of a snake in the environment um, without having to go through the more complex processing that would happen through the, the cortex where you go, oh, here's something that's got a certain color, it's got a certain shape, it could be a snake, a snake is associated with lots of negative things, danger, and so on and so forth. All that takes a bit of time. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes sense that we would have a structure like the amygdala that's responding really quickly and really rapidly and causing us to move away from these potentially noxious stimuli. And I think that that, that deserves more, uh, more investigation. Yeah. I, I know um, a, a book written by Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm not sure which one it was in particular, but he, he spoke about an experiment that had uh, participants, um, you know, flipping cards at random from two decks. And one deck was designed to be a uh, high risk, high reward. And the other deck was, was uh, designed to be, you know, low risk, but, you know, uh, a little reward over, over you know, and consistently. Yeah. And the participants were, flipping at random interestingly you know it would take something like you know 80 cards before they could say i know why i'm gravitating to this one because it's giving me these results they could verbalize it but they could go out and see that they were actually having different unconscious responses like you know sweatiness and heart rate and other different yeah. things well before those 80 cards where they could verbalize it. So they were demonstrating it at, you know, 30 cards or something, if I, if I recall, you know, thereabouts. So yeah. there's clearly processing that's occurring before it's conscious to us, before we can go out and say, I know what I'm doing. Like, it's very easy for me to say, I saw that person smile and that's why I smiled back. Yeah, um, yeah. But this is exactly where it didn't make sense. For, for for you, he said, well, you didn't see me smile. And he said, well, my actions showed I did, uh, yeah. which is, yeah. is, is, is fascinating. And, and so it seems like, you know, that factor must be in play, you know, in our lives on a, on a, on a daily basis. And I, I can only assume there has to be some evolutionary function to, to that. Yeah, you know, yeah. That it's kept us alive or, or assisted yeah, in some, exactly. some way. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. I, I I see. I think the 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 study that um, that was referred to there was the um, was a study by um, Antoine Bechara and um, Damasio also develops that idea in his book um, The Emotional Brain. It's true that there's also did I get that right at least or thereabouts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely it. It it, it shows that. To a certain extent, well, at least that's um, that's what's been suggested based on these on experiments such as uh, such as this so-called gambling task. Um, it suggests that at one point before you before you're cognitively aware aware of something, you have this emotional response, and mm. it, essentially what you're doing is interpreting the emotional response. Not really simplifying it there, but but um, but again, the, the basic idea is that you you kind of develop um based on previous experiences you have emotional responses to situations and what happens is then confronted with new situations you start to develop these gut feelings so to speak and you interpret those gut feelings and that helps you choose and decide things it makes a lot of sense because i, I like the idea 
because today we know that emotions are not, this isn't something that you can disconnect from cognition. For a long time, people studied humans as if we were robots and emotions were a kind of separate thing, but it, it's intertwined, obviously, and, uh, and our decisions are driven by emotions and our emotions drive our decisions. So we're, we're one in that sense, as far as emotions and cognition are concerned. Again, which is really interesting because bringing me back to this, to this very specific situation of how we unconsciously process uh, emotional stimuli, there's a lot going on that we don't think of. Uh, and, and I'd like to give you an example I, I gave to a student uh, a few weeks ago. It happened to me, I was driving, uh, I was with my wife, I was in the passenger seat. We stop at a traffic light and I turn around and I look at the car next to me that was slightly ahead of me. So I was slightly, again, slightly to the side and behind the lady who was driving the car. And she was, she stopped at the light and she was doing something on her phone at the traffic light. And I was looking at her thinking, oh my gosh, she's taking a risk because it's a, a terrible fine if you get caught doing that. And as I'm staring at her, thinking that, suddenly she turns around and in one, in one single sweep, she turns around and looks straight at me. And this example, lots of people have, and we've been through it a lot of times. That means that this isn't a random occurrence. We're, I suspect there again that in our peripheral field, in our far periphery, we're actually processing, constantly processing information and things that may be relevant are then going to be brought to our attention. We're going to then shift our attention and go and see what's going on in the field. All that aspect of processing, again, this is all ongoing without our awareness. That lady in the car, she was doing something on her phone she was focused on whatever she was doing sending a message or something something yet at the same time and i suspect again it's the amygdala that's probably processing information in the peripheral field without it ever reaching consciousness and at one point it's a face it's not just anything it's my face staring at her that probably pushed the information into consciousness and then caused her to turn um, her attention and see who, who who was looking at me like that, who's staring at me. Again, all these things are going on constantly and we're not aware of it. And I think there's a lot there to explore in what our brain is doing without us knowing, so to speak. It would be interesting to, to, to see if there's research or to do each research, which sees whether there's a higher chance of us turning around if someone's looking at us versus if they're not because you know sometimes we, we've all felt that experience of like i'm being yeah you know, watched or someone's looking at me or maybe they're critiquing me and clearly there's plenty of false positives there that that yeah. you know and so we can have confirmation bias but you have to do the science around and go what's going on there because obviously there would be a evolutionary uh, advantage to see someone if they're looking at you versus you know not and yeah. and you know th this might be also why you know we try and learn you know with with, with I know certain animals or something it might be you know don't look at them in the eyes or something yeah. now, whether they're fairy tales or not i don't know i'm not you know uh, an animal handler but uh you know we we do hear these things about you know how to to react you know to mm -hmm. certain animals and maybe you know that 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 says something about how they're wired um and and yeah. obviously you know potentially how we're wired and even fascinating that story chances are the amygdala is looking for a police officer because that's more more likely than than uh you know an oncoming car smashing into him which is funny you know we yeah. we're kind of like, i'm more likely to get stung four hundred dollars and four you know demerit points on my license yeah. um, than i am to to you know uh, yeah. uh, uh, have an accident or something or be aware so it's it, it's quite funny how how we behave but at least that, yeah. That's what I'm assuming is happening there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, surprising that I, actually this I was um, I've got some students working on that at the moment. Uh, we initially because the other thing we know is that our vision isn't very precise in the peripheral field. We don't see that. I mean, we're not very good at distinguishing or identifying things in the periphery. So it kind of made us one made me wonder: Do we have um, 
the ability to detect an emotional expression in the field. Would, would we be better at detecting an angry face or a neutral face in our peripheral field if it's really in the extreme periphery? And uh, we started running that experiment. Um, it's, it's, it's ongoing. And it turns out that it's not that easy to, to guess what the emotion is for uh, a face that's really very far in your periphery. But surprisingly, well, no, actually, it isn't surprising. I say unsurprisingly. In fact, it, we are detecting, we tried, we went up to 50 degrees laterally, and people are still practically at 100%. Uh, able to detect the presence of a face in the environment. It's really surprising. We, you can go quite far and still detect a face. So again, what might be happening is, I, I'm guessing here, but what might be happening is that the, the amount of information processing that's going on in the peripheral field and what the amygdala is doing is really looking at very crude information, very basic things. Maybe at the end of the day, it'll be just about two eyes staring at you and not even, uh, sure. and not even a whole face. It would be a more parsimonious explanation because that would, uh, that would then include animals, for example, potentially, a, you know, whatever, a lion or whatever staring at you in the periphery. Might be about eyes. Mm-hmm. How does this work in, in, in maybe a, um, obviously we're looking at the peripheral, so that's going to be much more crude. How does it work when you know we have, you know, a, a full face recognition as we are at the moment? You know, I know that there are elements, particularly something that you've you know looked at, you know, being trustworthiness, which is probably at the center of all of this because that's kind of how we relate with one another, and and so many social in, you know, encounters and engagements are around trustworthiness or, or lack thereof. Um, how does it work in in that space? Are there, you know, are, yeah. we, is, are there micro expressions that 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 occurring in the background? You know, what are they if 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 identifiable? Um, yeah. uh, you know, because obviously, you know, we all know how to smile, um, but we've all also, uh, I'm assuming others have experienced life the way I have. Sometimes you meet someone and they just look creepy if i can use that word you know you just can't trust them and and i'd hate if that's a false positive which i'm sure it is you know many a time because our radars probably aren't that good but there's something that you you you're repelled by or or concerned by something's going on like i don't know they they're not striking me as someone i want to spend a lot of time and it's haven't even spoken to them yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, that that's 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 quite true. And and in fact, it's also because of this type of question that um, that has also come up in my mind uh, that I also began to be interested in things like um, facial trustworthiness or or dominance because uh, um, because it's true that we get these impressions, and I was wondering how close they are to, and how similar they are to this processing we have of this non-conscious processing of emotional expressions that we display and yeah i think there again it's quite interesting because of course there is a fair amount of 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 research that's been carried out for example on, on trustworthiness how we rate a face of another individual as being trustworthy or not and there are several different features actually that play a part What's interesting is one of these features are these characteristics, these facial character characteristics, structural characteristics that possibly um, mimic facial expressions because what we have is people who have a, you note that someone who has a mouth that's slightly curved upwards will be generally judged as more trustworthy as someone whose mouth is curled downwards. For example, um, same with eyebrows. For example, eyebrows that tend to go slightly towards a frowning position, when a natural position that would, that would resemble frowning, so slightly V-shaped. <coughs> these would uh, person with eyebrows I have would be tr- would be considered less trustworthy than those who have the downward uh, 
eyebrows, sort of the kind of shape that you get um, in a smiling face. So you have, there's a whole lot of features there that seem to be, and there's a researcher in that area called Todorov, who uh, who did a substantial amount of research there, who, um, who suggests that in in part, not entirely, but in part, what's what may be happening is that this trustworthiness judgment is piggybacking on the emotion processing uh, network in the brain. So essentially, it's your emotion processing, the areas that would normally respond to facial expressions that, that are responding to these micro features, these small structural uh, differences. And this impression of trustworthiness is actually once again piggybacking on those uh, information processing networks. But that's not the whole story either, because there are other features that seem to be linked more to um, to um, uh, hormonal uh, aspects, things like the more male-looking hormones, so um, uh, brow ridges that sort of stick out, or a, a square jaw, for example, uh, will be considered less trustworthy than a more pointy chin, these more um, generally more female traits, let's say. So they're also hormonal aspects that, that are playing a part. So, yeah. So it's, it's really playing, obviously, there, there, there might be an emphasis in, in your research and maybe others in terms of that trustworthiness, uh, because that's the logical space to go. But in actual fact, you suspect it, it's occurring across the board, whether it's yeah. dominance, whether it's compassion, whether it's, you know, maybe the difference between you know, someone yeah. who can be compassionate, you know, empathic or even sympathetic, you know, and the, the differences about how people even do this when they're feeling your pain or they can understand being in your shoes, that is, there, there's a likelihood that if, if, if the measures were available, we could see some differences as to how we perceive uh, the, you know, expression of that um yeah you know, that that's in our unconscious uh that, that that's kind of pushing our behavior or even our emotions around as to why we relate to others in a certain way yeah absolutely yeah it's true again this is bi-directional influences there because i think that we're constantly um making decisions we mentioned this earlier on um when talking about the fact that our emotions influence uh, our cognitive processes and vice versa. But there was an interesting study, and I think it relates to what you uh, are just mentioning, what you just mentioned now. It's an interesting study uh, where they showed photographs of persons who were politicians or not of countries that the participants didn't know of. So, Basically, they're running it in the country and they're taking photographs of politicians from some uh, country Spain or something on the other mm, side, yeah, exactly, yeah. on the other side of the world that no one's really uh, aware of what's going on. And they got them to try and guess if um, they thought that person would be a good politician or not. Just, you know, just showing a photograph. Do you think this person could be a good politician or not? And it, it turns out that there again, people tend to be pretty much above chance. So which is surprising at first, but then when you think of it, maybe it isn't that surprising because maybe when you go and vote for a politician, you're actually also, your vote is influenced, is highly influenced by what the person looks like, by facial characteristics, by micro expressions and so on and so forth. So yeah, we're probably I mean, we, always we, we, doing that. Our, our current prime minister has, has changed his image, you know, very significantly from previously, you know, with regards to his weight in particular, but also in his facial appearance and yeah. you know, how he, you know, suits up each day, at least, you know, coming into the election and how it was discussed. So, you know, you're, you're, uh, I imagine, you know, they're not silly either. Yeah. They, they, they understand the, the, the value where they're going out and doing a, you know, yeah. an actual, a control study or something like that is probably unlikely, but but they're certainly influenced by thinking, you know, of of you know in that yeah. same way. Yeah. You know what's interesting about that is is I recall reading uh, um, about that same scenario that you said where people were given uh, random 
uh, you know, photos of politicians and and you know a control group, um, you know, random people, and picking you know, which ones are most likely to be to be um, you know, politicians and you know above chance uh, that was yeah. found to be uh, access, access somehow by, by humans. I read that a similar thing was was done with uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse, um, yeah. and that they were given photos of. Um, and I believe this was done with younger persons. Um, don't know how the ethics went through and, and 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 the like, or when it was even done. So I'm, I'm I don't know if this is valid or true or, or not, but it's reminded me of of, of this. Um, and that there was a higher than uh, chance um, where there were certain photos that were selected more often by. Who the perpetrator would select to target as a victim, um, or to approach, um, and I don't know whether you know, it's valid and and obviously you know frightening implications if you know we'd all be scared, but it seems to me like it's ringing the same truth that there there is, there is something that we're all you know depending on what we're looking for and. You know, maybe that's you know from a crime, violence. Maybe that's you know how does someone cons people. Um, uh, that there, yeah. there's all these influences that are going on, and uh, you know, is, is yeah. there even a possibility um, or a likelihood? I suppose. I mean, everything's a possibility, but is it a likelihood that, um, yeah. you know, that we're geared to try and select people for what we're trying to do? You know, um, I mean, I assume you know, in nightclubs, yeah. we're probably all trying to do that with meeting a partner. Yeah sometimes successful or not. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is obviously a bit more of a scary scenario. Yeah, but you know, Absolutely. And, and it would make sense. Obviously, you, uh, you, you know, you'd want to, of course, the idea is not about um, putting any blame on the victim here or anything. Of no, course. No. But, but, but at the same time, what, what, what it may mean, I think, is that perpetrators may be looking for specific traits that we might not be aware of, but it's almost ethological. It's maybe someone who may act, or in, in this case, it was photographs. Are there certain traits that um, make the perpetrator believe that that, that person would be a, a potential victim? more easily than someone else. I don't know this study, but perhaps it could, I can see it relating, for example, to dominance. Perhaps there are certain traits that might inhibit a perpetrator thinking, oh, this person um, feels dominant. Again, we have this judgment when you show photographs, you can play around with certain uh, traits. Uh, um, for example, again, the jaw, the the, the eyebrows, so it's the shape of the face. and Participants who look at these photographs will judge some of these photos as being of people who are more dominant, hierarchically more dominant, more dominant personalities. Mm. So I can I can see that tying in in this kind of way. The the problem is, uh, and and there's there's a history for that also that dates way back to the study of criminology. Uh, of course, these characteristics. Now, don't necessarily reflect what the person is. Uh, so, so it's not because yeah. someone has dominant traits that that person is dominant. And the error comes from then trying to believe that there is a parallelism between the physical features or the facial features and the actual person's character. Obviously, that yeah. doesn't that doesn't equate. But that does make sense because the the dominance factor, you know, would. I'm assuming play out in that scenario in particular around, for example, if someone might be timid, they might be uh, yeah. maybe potentially you know, uh, more susceptible to um, you know grooming over time uh, that yeah. someone could then you know you know obviously uh, uh, um, exploit. Um, but it is it is interesting because you know the same thing would be true if if someone felt that i had a characteristic of you know being impulsive or or, or something like that where you know if they continue to try and sell me something you know higher than average so if they they, they thought that someone is less impulsive and i'm more impulsive i will potentially get more opportunities to buy something because i'll be offered more times so it might look as though uh you know 
I'm buying more, but in actual fact, there is, you know, other factors that could account for some of that variance, you know, that yeah. anyone with lots and lots of marketing or lots of approaches is, is more likely to you know, find themselves, um, you know, potentially having that, you know, purchasing that item. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, I hope that's come across okay that certainly yeah. not placing anything, any blame on, 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 on victim by, by any means, yeah. just talking about, you know, human perception and, and, and the queuing um, and whether that might even play in that, you know, awful absolutely. area of life. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And in fact, along those lines, maybe something I, I just wanted to point out as well is that one of the studies I've done on, on uh, trustworthiness was based on the fact that even though I'm interested in biological features, at the same time, our social lives as humans, we are ultimately you know, profoundly social beings, and we've developed into the species we are uh, because we are high, highly social as well. Um, and that means that we mustn't forget that aspect. So coming back, for example, to trustworthiness or dominance, uh, I've been running a series of experiments now to try and determine how quickly we pick up on dominance through interaction. So now this is the same photograph of the same individual. And some of the participants are going to, they're going to play a computer game with this person thinking it's a real person. And on half the half of the trials, this person will be a lot better than the player, than the participant. And on the other half, they'll be a lot worse. So it's the same face. But sometimes it's it's a person who's going to end up being perceived as a lot better than you or a lot worse than you. In a separate series of experiments, the same type of task, but it was a trustworthiness game where you have to share amounts of money with the other individual. Now, the result of this, I thought that the biological features would be processed really rapidly. Again, coming back to the uh, beginning of our discussion about the amygdala and these rapid uh, processing networks that seem to occur without awareness. I was expecting that as far as dominance and trustworthiness are concerned, that when you learn about it, it would be the cortex. It would be later processes, processes that are learned as opposed to the biological ones that you get the first impression, the facial impression. And so far, I've been surprised because it, it hasn't been the case in the sense that if you take just a, a neutral looking face and you get a person to interact with that supposed other individual, when they spot that that person is dominant or is trustworthy, you're going to start having the same type of rapid response when they see that face. So in other words... It looks like when we learn that someone is trustworthiness, the the response is just as efficient, is just as strong as when you're just basing your your, your judgment on facial features. This is ongoing research. I'm not 100% sure that it's the case, but in a way, I thought, well, actually, maybe it's not surprising because, again, we are social beings, and it's not just about what the person looks like, of course. Mm. It's about how we're going to interact and very rapidly, we're going to start picking up on, on someone independently of their face. You're going to start picking up on through interaction on whether that person is trustworthiness and your brain's going to respond really quickly to that. Almost has an overriding affect where initially, I mean, this is where, you know, obviously racism, sexism, ageism, all, all those things come from in, in many ways. We have an initial response that, you know, occurs automatically and hopefully through, you know, education and being exactly. you know, uh, a reasonable human being, you can have a conversation and, and actually go beyond the label, the, yeah. the, 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 the you know, characterization and go, in actual fact, they're a, a nice human being. You know, it's kind of like those studies when they put those kids, you know, Palestinian kids with, uh, with uh, you know, Jewish kids and, 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 you know, they're best friends, you know, and yeah. it all, all goes away. But you know, you separate them, and 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 you know, they they cry at separation because they've lost a you know a, a, a you know a heartfelt friend, um, yeah. and then you know, years later, yeah, you know that's all eroded, and 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 they you know, have a, a bit of hatred towards one another, you know, at least yeah. in some studies, and yeah, but we want to override that. So yeah, you know, there's an adaptability there. 
what are the implications? And I apologize for asking maybe a bit of a, uh, a, a naive question, but what are the implications for you know your findings and your 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 studies? How how do we use you know this this really important research or, or how does it help us um you know i've only just started thinking about this so i'm i'm uh, hoping to understand some more you know how do, how do we uh, use this information you know or how does it assist us in maybe suspending our gut feelings yeah. at times you know because yeah. I, I imagine my gut feelings are wrong quite often yeah. um and at the same time maybe i need to actually allow them to express themselves at other times if my risk profile yeah. is, is is higher. Yeah. yeah, I see what you mean. It's true that at this point I'm still I still feel that we're in the process of trying to figure out how things work. And um it, to that in that sense it's still perhaps early days uh as to how we can then really use that but i think it's already providing some pointers on things and again the example uh, that we just mentioned now that we just spoke about this incident is is i think um pretty demonstrative it's the fact that we can change that lots of stuff that goes on lots of our, our responses in everyday life are, are based on stereotypes and what we're what we're seeing again from the example of the experiment uh, that I mentioned just before is that these are at least very um, very flexible and we can we can modify this through interactions I I think it's highlighting again the fact that's often forgotten that it's important to learn and to learn very early on in life uh, why those stereotypes are not applicable. I think I can give you just one other example, which is not my research, but research that has been done um, by other colleagues on uh, what they've called the other race effect. It's the brain response to photographs of people from one's one's own race or another or the uh, another race. And uh, what we see is when you look at a photo. This is results that have been published. When you look at a photo of someone who uh, is the same ethnic origin as yourself, you get a certain response. If you look at a face from another ethnic group, the typical early response to the face is going to be diminished if you haven't been in contact with this other ethnic group, if you're not used to seeing those faces. So, mm -hmm. and this was carried out, I think, on a group of, of Asian students um, in Scotland. So they essentially compared uh, the response of an Asian, of a group of Asian students to Caucasian faces. And what they did was they compared the response of these students to Caucasian faces when they had just come to the UK versus when they had been there for a long time. And, the end result that I find interesting is that over time, this result normalizes, well, normalizes, it becomes similar across ethnic groups. So you need to interact. You need to interact a lot. And, uh, and it's through interaction that this, your brain response is going to be modified. More fundamentally, I think what's happening is that the brain is actually computing an average. The more different events you're faced with, the more different faces you see. Um, your brain is constantly computing and averaging. It's creating an average as a moving average kind of situation. And, um, and I think that that, in a way, is for me, is progress. Because I think that means that if we want to go beyond stereotypes, it's about mixing people up, typically in social situations. It's about avoiding at all costs ghettoization, for example. But again, that's I think things for the future. It's it's it, it's very fascinating because I remember growing up, you know, uh, having a Serbian heritage, and you know, my parents migrating uh, with my brother and I, uh, and you know, as we know, former Yugoslavia went through some terrible wars, um, and you know, as a young man, uh, and maybe this was reinforced by my parents, but you know. Croatians were the enemy, right? And we all know if we grew up here in 
that that region probably even these days at school you know serbians versus croatians type of scenario right yeah. um and there's plenty of examples like that but i i was convinced well i remember i used to look around and i used to think that i could visually see the difference between a serbian and a croatian mm-hmm. now clearly plenty of uh, uh confirmation bias you know because you yeah. learn about it and so on but Clearly, they were the exact same human beings because they came from the exact same, yes. you know, uh, 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 heritage and that that region that you know everyone, um, you know, shared shared their their um, you know offspring and so on. Yeah. But it's funny how that was overriding, yeah, uh, you know, potential trustworthiness and all this other stuff. So I had you know strong scheme, and obviously over time, you know, thankfully you grow out of you know adolescence um, and trying to yeah. beat your chest and so on. You know, you don't need to yeah. survive anymore. Um, but also, you know, in observing, you know, parents who you know, connect and have friends that are, you know, Croatian and, you know, from, from other places in the, in the region, um, that, uh, you know, that softens as well. And so all of a sudden, you know, trustworthiness is, is got nothing to do with these objective ideas that, that you know, yeah. maybe we, we return back to what you're talking about, which is, you know, there's not a natural processes that are occurring, you know, that, that, um, you know, micro expressions or, um, yeah. you know, that, that hopefully flatten the curve. They, they, they average it out a bit more and, and, and we see people as humans rather than a category, you know, um, yeah, exactly. you know, even the category of, you know, old versus young or, you know, male versus female, you know, that, that ultimate category. You know, yeah. Humans- yeah, yeah. So absolutely, absolutely. Wow, wow, there's so much to, 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 uh, it's you know, really... learn. I, I imagine your biggest struggle is finding, you know, where do I find all the resources to do the, the volume of research that I want to do to, absolutely. to take this space absolutely. further. Yeah. Now, are there many people around the world doing this like, 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 like you are? Um, yeah, well, it's not a very, very large community, but it's there's a substantial number of, of researchers working in the field. And uh, yeah, there's some good, really good researchers in, in that area, good things going on. Um, as you say, it's often about getting funding for it and, and being able to, to go forward because often in the absence of any clear uh, use for this in immediate use apparent use for this uh, for this type of research it's um, it becomes a bit more difficult to get it funded even though I think and more I, the more I'm in this field the more I realize that this is probably a prerequisite to things that I can sense are going to be important in the future how we again how we perceive others how we uh, perceive other ethnic groups etc etc oh, i can see so many applications you know especially going to the world of you know artificial intelligence and robotics yeah. where we're going to be trying to relate with these people and 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 or entities you yeah. know these machines and and the the great importance that we place on you know, yeah, uh, yeah. A, a connection but also you know cultural differences you know when, when, when someone's in a nursing home um, yeah. you know why wouldn't we tailor Uh, a particular way that this person might uh, perceive the world because you know maybe they're of a you know different ethnicity or a different background maybe they've had a every every different life story you know whether someone lived rurally or if they've lived you know in town yeah it's there's great implication you know and you know I, i don't know maybe i'm biased because I think all research should be funded because it. I think it all has incredible value, and you know, I know that yeah. you know the, the academic life is a is a hard one because you're kind of saying, "Pick me, pick me, I matter." You know, <laughs> the, this is a topic that has real you know, life uh, utility, which you know I, I'm sure it does, um, but you know, it's harder to to um, yeah. uh, sell that. That, that story at the moment because people Absolutely. can't see it tangibly but i'm, I'm sure it's coming um, and yeah. I, 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 uh, yeah. um on okay. on that basis can, can i maybe uh, uh also just ask you to 
maybe tell people, uh, our listeners, about if anyone wants to get involved. I know that you're at UQ, um, how they can get in touch or, you know, where they can go to find out more information or maybe where your publications are, you know, uh, yeah. are accessible. Uh, maybe you can tell our listeners then uh, now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, luckily, uh, being at UQ, uh, there's I've got a website um, so people can look for my name on the UQ website. There's my email. I'm happy to take uh, any emails from anyone who's interested uh, in knowing more about uh, this this field or who's interested in participating in 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 studies and so on and uh, and otherwise there's also a list of my publications on the UQ website that can be uh, that can be uploaded I think if I'm not mistaken the list of of uh, publications uh, is there and uh, I can give you a few of uh, a few links as well if anyone's interested yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And do you know the uh, UQ website um, off off the top of your head? Yeah, so so if you just it's on the UQ website, it's www.uq.edu.au. Fantastic, fantastic. And uh, yeah, and then you can look for my name, and uh, there's details there. And just look up Associate Professor Alan Pena. Um, yeah, that's P E G N A for those listening. Uh, fantastic well thank you so much uh for your time today extremely fascinating and and you know i you know i, I know these biases are, are are occurring all the time that's what fascinates me so much you know it's very easy for us to see confirmation bias um but but to see these other confirmation biases that are happening in the background is so important because it, it tells us we've got to be more and more mindful, cognizant to, to try and override, you know, many of our natural processes, particularly living in the modern world. And, yeah. you know, you know, we we know, for example, that, you know, people who are more attractive to our, you know, uh, eye get treated differently. And, you know, as human beings, I think we all want to avoid that. You know, we want yeah. to go out and say, in actual fact, you know, I want to go out of my way to treat my fellow human being irrespective of what they look like, you know, that, and, you know, we're all going to age. Right? So, so I'm probably not going to look as, uh, as, uh, you know, handsome rooster as I do today. Um, um, for, for any length of time, probably only my wife would say that. Um, and, and that's probably fading as well. <laughs> Uh, but we're all going to age and, and, you know, obviously I'm well past my expiry date from, from, from that perspective. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, uh, we want human beings to, 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 to um, sometimes go with their gut because there is uh, uh, evolutionary value and other times to go out and say, if I've got time, I should actually try and pull back or, or if I don't have time, maybe I can think about it ahead of time. Um, so maybe I'm, you know, less racist, sexist, ageist, you know, yeah. whateverist, you know, that 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 I, you know, can't pull the wool you know, over my eyes as as, as easily. Yeah. So I think this conversation is is so important, you know, um, because yeah. it really speaks to you know, how we process information um, without knowing it. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, that's it. No, thank you very much again for um, getting the occasion to meet up with you and have this conversation. It's really interesting, even for me, because obviously I'm working in the field and I'm, you know, looking at the details every day. And, and it's nice to be able also to take a step back and look at the whole picture and uh, the different things I've been doing. So it's also useful for me to have this conversation kind of sets up the stage again that I tend to forget. Well, yeah, and I think you know a lot of a lot of these you know niched places you know that have got you know people like yourself who are completely obsessed you know with with with, with this stuff, which is exactly what we need, right? They get lost because there's no there's no audience, there's there's no one to talk to about this and say, hey, you know, this is so exciting and fascinating and interesting and. You know, and it needs an obsession around it. And, and you know, that's why I love your story at the very beginning where, you know, you were on your trajectory in life and then all of a sudden one little smile yeah. um, that got a smile back that shouldn't have had a smile back. 
exactly. just, just completely, you know, uh, creates a, a new trajectory, explosion of ideas. And, and yeah. um, you know, that's, we, we need people like, you know, more people like yourself. So, yeah, thank yeah. you for your contributions and thank you for your <laughs> time today. And, uh, you know, you. also if, if, if uh, you know, your, your uh, you know, research, um, you know, con- continues down, down its, you know, exciting path, you're more than welcome to come back onto the show to, to, Talk to our listeners about the the latest and greatest and and, with pleasure uh, applications. So thanks again. That would be with pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you